Jesus opened those words to us that we could get a clearer picture of you and in getting a clearer picture of you that we would be compelled to trust you with all the details of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again. Uh, whether you are a regular or a guest or just happen to wander in because you were looking for parking for the Arts and Crafts Festival, that's fine too. <laughs> Stick around. It'll be over soon. Don't worry. Um, we're glad to have you here. And today uh, we're talking about uh, something that I think that God wants to give to you and to me. Something that I think that God wants to give to you and that we desperately need, but we don't know how to get it, even if we talk about wanting it and try to get it, and that's freedom from the performance trap. Freedom from the performance trap. I know that on the east side, we don't struggle much with that. Um, it's not really like a high-achieving, high-performing kind of area, but for other, that's called sarcasm, by the way, in case we weren't tracking, um, but... We know that. We know what it's like to feel that desperate need to prove ourselves, to get things just right so we can get that right opportunity that can lead to that other right opportunity. And if we miss something, if we get it wrong, the consequences of a B, oh my gosh, terrifying. I think God wants to free us from the performance trap that all of us at some level are kind of stuck in. And I want to tell you why today. In my late 20s, I was on staff at the college ministry in California, and we, I, I was a worship leader, and I led music for college students every week. And uh, I was working for this kind of up-and-comer named Scott Dudley, and he didn't have a lot of potential at that time, but he still was just, he was a hard worker. And uh, he's not here this week, so I can say that. Um, I, I led music for our, our college ministry was specifically to Stanford students. Now, to be clear, I did not go to Stanford, and a lot of you are going, yeah, we know. That's kind of obvious. Um, but I got to work with Stanford students, and it was this tremendous time. But kind of in that season, too, just it felt like life was catching up with me. Like the pain that I had experienced up until that point was catching up with me. And I was kind of having a midlife, quarter-life crisis kind of combined together. And uh, it was all happening there as I was sort of leading worship for this college group. Kind of the years of my mom being sick, progressively worse and worse, and then finally dying, caught up with me. This engagement that I had that got broken off eight weeks before the wedding day, close call, caught up with me. <laughs> the pain of just seeing, feeling like my dreams were just getting further and further away. In high school, I wanted to be a Christian rock star. This is not what I had in mind. <laughs> Leading music for a bunch of entitled college students. <laughs> that wasn't my dream. And that night, uh, this particular night, I was uh, having closed with this song called uh, Amazing Grace. And I remember singing Amazing Grace, playing Amazing Grace, while inside my head thinking, Amazing Grace? You've got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. This is not my dream. I've tried to do everything right all along, and this is what I get? Amazing Grace? This is the thanks I get. I got done with Amazing Grace. For some reason, I said amen, I think just out of habit. I said, amen, probably way too loud, probably in a very angry, amen, and then threw down my guitar and stormed out of the classroom. Very dramatic. I've always been that way. And my wife can tell you, that's true. Um, head out to the front of the university. There's this place called the Oval, and I'm out there, and it's late at night, and I'm just raging at God. God, you did this to me. I tried to follow you. I tried to do all these things right my whole life. I've tried to follow you and do what's right, and this is what I get? 
my dreams not coming true, things not working out, all this pain, all this brokenness, give me a break. Have you ever felt that way toward God? Like, God, I've been, I've been doing what you're telling me to do. I've been doing my best to try to be faithful and be loving and be serving, and this is what I got. This is the life that comes as a result of that. I thought you were going to make my life better. Sometimes it feels like you make my life worse, Jesus. We know that experience. It's a familiar one, and many of you are in the thick of that right now. You're in that place where you've been working hard. You've been trying hard. You've been trying to prove yourself. You've been trying to show that you're faithful. You're righteous. And life is not working out like you'd like it to. And that's hard. God knows this tendency about us to want to prove ourselves, to want to get it just right. He sees that. He sees us hurting. He sees us trying to get life just right, trying to perform, prove ourselves, be better, run faster. He sees that. And so he responds to that. He doesn't leave us hanging there. With it all up to us, all on our shoulders, he sees us and he responds. But he doesn't respond with just some kind of Christian witticism. He doesn't say, hey, everybody, just let go and let me. It's all going to work out. By the, one, by the way, he's the only one who can have that bumper sticker. Some of you are checking, some aren't, but that's probably because it's not funny. Um, he doesn't respond with a witticism. Instead, he responds with an image. Like, I know this about you. I know this is your character. So I'm going to give you an image that you can hold on to. And 2,000 years later, we are still holding on to this image. This is a powerful image. It's an image of what true life is like. That life that we actually go looking for in trying to get everything lined up. The life that we go looking for in trying to satisfy all those felt unmet needs. That life, I'm going to show you what it is. It's an image from the garden. An image from the garden. And he gives it to, he gives it to his disciples uh, over a meal. He shares it with him, this image, uh, as, as friends, as his followers. And it's around this meal, this very special meal, this last meal that they're going to share right before Jesus goes to the cross. That Jesus is kind of summarizing all of his life, all of his ministry, and summarizing for them what it means to have life with Jesus true life. So he gives them this image of the garden. He says, my father, my father is the gardener. He's the one that sees to it that everything the branches need to bear fruit happens. He's the one who takes the initiative and, and starts the process. When there's pruning needed to clean, to purify, he does that too so that we could bear even more fruit. It's, it's the father, the gardener who does all this work. Me, I'm, I'm the vine. I'm the vine. I'm the source of this life. I'm the vine. Now, Jesus says that part as they're sitting around the meal, and they probably got a little surprised because up until that point, they understood the vine as an image for them. The vine was this image always associated with Israel. It was given to them by God as, as this identity saying that, that my love, my life is going to flow through you. It's going to flow through you. It's going to bear tremendous fruit. You're the vine. But Jesus is taking that back. He's taking that back and go, you tried to make it up to you, but it's not up to you. You tried to do this whole thing by just getting it right, by building all these rules, trying to perform, trying to get it exactly right. It's not working, so I'm taking it back. I am the vine. I'm the source of life. Not your ability to get it right. I am the vine. And they had to be a little shocked. 
Jesus is taking it back. I am life. I'm not just the way to life. I am life. The Father is the gardener. Jesus is the vine. What does that make us? Branches, which is not the most glamorous title I've ever gotten. I'm a branch. You're a branch. 2,000 years later, we're branches, which doesn't sound particularly interesting until you start thinking of what a branch does. A branch is a conduit for the life of the vine. It's a conduit for the life of the vine. The life of the vine is to flow through the branch to produce fruit. A branch does not produce its own fruit. It is a conduit for the life to produce fruit through it. And the disciples are kind of interested. They they sense that this is an important moment. Something big is going to happen. They sense that the life that they've been after in following Jesus is, is kind of coming to some sort of like anchor point. Like, okay, this is what it's going to be about. And so they're sort of leaning in, and Jesus is sort of being the incredible storyteller. He is sort of baiting them. And he says, here's the secret. You guys want to know the secret? Yeah, we want to know the secret. Here's the secret to life, the universe, and everything. Here's what it's all about. Here's the secret. Remain in me. Whoa. I'm not sure what that means, Jesus, but that sounds pretty profound. Remain in me. In fact, he says, remain in me, make your home in me, abide with me, seven times in about 12 verses. Remain in me, 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 remain in me. I think he's trying to make a point. The disciples think so too. It all seems to hinge around this. Remain in me. What does remain in me, Jesus? What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we do that? We want this life. We're hungry for it. We know it. We're tired of the rule-keeping. We're tired of the rule-keeping. We want life. We know you got it. What should we do? What does it mean to remain in me? And Jesus says, if you want to remain in me, obey my commands. Oh. So you're saying that, uh, so kind of life that we want is is back to the rule-keeping, right? We've got to keep the rules. Want to remain in him, we keep the rules. And Jesus can see the disappointment on their faces. I'm sure. And it's all part of his story. He's baiting them in, saying that your disappointment lies in the fact that you, you know you can't get it all right. But you can't seem to stop trying to get it all right, too. Bible teacher Daryl Johnson says, there are two kinds of sinners in the world. Those who break the rules and those who keep the rules. And both are in desperate need of a loving Savior, because ultimately, it's not about the rules. This is why so many people don't trust Jesus, don't trust the church for sure, because we seem to be obsessed with rule keeping and with judging those people who aren't keeping what we think are the rules. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not the kind of obedience I'm talking about. In fact, that's not obedience at all. That's just you trying to manage life on your own again by you trying to get it right in order to control your life. And I'm saying, drop that. Remain in me. But keep my commands in a way different from what you're thinking. It's not keep my rules. It's not check things off the list to make sure you're lined up with me so I'll be happy with you so you're on that road. No, 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 no. Remain in me means relationship, means joy-filled intimacy. It means something very different. In fact, we tend to associate obedience with rule-keeping, right? Rule-keeping, 
Clean your room. No, seriously, clean your room. I'm looking at you. Clean your room. Um, yeah, I'm looking at you. Clean your room. And then it just kind of grows as we grow. It just turns into something else. Like, make the deadline. Make the bump in your pay. Like, live up to our expectations. Do it or else. And Jesus comes and he just subverts all of that. He says, it's not, that's not what I mean. Obedience is actually relating. It's intimacy with me. Intimacy with me. At some level, we're all stuck in this performance trap. And this can be good news. It doesn't immediately feel like good news because, again, we hear, keep my commands if you want to remain in me. And we hear, keep all my rules if you want to have the life that you want. But God says, no, no, no. Obedience equals relating. Of course, life isn't found in rule keeping. Of course. It's not about the rules. It's about this joy-filled intimacy with me. And he explains what he means. He redefines obedience. Redefines obedience. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He's describing a love relationship. Now, remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The Father's love that I share in, that he shares with me, this dance, this intimate, joy-filled relationship, that's how I've loved you. And that's what I'm inviting you into. Not this purposelessness, this meaninglessness, this striving, this striving to prove yourself. Knowing you can never quite get there, but you can't stop striving anyway. It's about this dance, this intimacy. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And I'm inviting you into that love. In the story of the prodigal son, there's two sons. There's the younger son who sins by breaking all the rules. And there's the older son who sins by, keep breaking, by keeping all the rules. He keeps all the rules. And remember, at the, at the end of that scene, there's that, that, that conversation between the older son and his father. It was like, all this time I have served you, and you never threw me a party. All this time I've served you, and you never threw me a party. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you can assume you are an older son. You are an older son. You are an older daughter. That's, that's part of our deal as followers of Jesus because we come as those wanting to prove ourselves but it doesn't work. At the end of that story with the prodigal son, the father, we, we don't hear his response. We heard the response for, with his younger son. He says, come home, come home. And he just treats him with all this lavishness. Even though he's broken his father's heart, caused all this incredible shame, he calls him home. For the older son, we don't hear how he responds. He just kind of leaves it, Jesus, the great storyteller, leaves it hanging. Kind of like, how will you respond? Because you've got an option here. Basically, you've got one or two choices. You can either try to keep all the rules, try to get life right, just try to work a little harder, strive a little more, get life together. If I can just get life together, it's all going to make sense. Or you can have life. You can have me. You can have intimacy. You can have stuff that, that goes beyond our understanding that is satisfying in a way that you can't even possibly imagine. See, remaining is not simply believing in God, though that's crucial. It includes being in union with him, sharing his thoughts, emotions, intentions. Did you know that God has emotions? He does. His heart breaks for the pain in the world. 
He rejoices when we rejoice. He wants so much for people to enter into this joy-filled intimacy. Obedience is not rule-keeping. Obedience is relating. In fact, obedience, true obedience, is always joyful, full of joy. And I want to explain that because if you're like me, you don't experience obedience as joy, at least not most of the time. Oftentimes, I feel like the abundant life that Jesus talks about is kind of hanging by your fingernails. Sometimes that's the abundant life. Joy is not happiness, and that's where we get confused. Jesus is describing a different kind of thing. When he says it's his joy, his joy is this unique thing that only he can produce, that only he can live through us, not something we can conjure up. It is not Disney in any way. We can pay Disney lots of money, and we can go there and have fun. We can be happy, unless we're the parents of young children, but we can, we can go there, right, and, and, and be happy and have some good feelings and good emotions, potentially, but that's not joy. In fact, joy often comes with tears. Joy is not happiness. Joy often comes with tears. Joy instead is this quiet grounding, this quiet knowing that God is good. That no matter what, no matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what's going on right now, it's not denying the pain that I'm in. It's saying this hurts really, really bad and God is really, really good at the same time. That's joy. Quiet confidence that in the end, all things will be well. Why? Because God is good. Joy is often accompanied by tears. In fact, the greatest symbol we have for joy is not the empty tomb, though that is a joyous symbol. The greatest symbol is the cross. The greatest symbol of joy is the cross. It's this ultimate act of love, of intimacy. I will do anything for you. I will do everything for you. This is joy. God is at work even now. Even in those oval, Stanford oval moments you've got going right now, where you're raging against God, saying, God, this is not fair. And you know what? He might agree with you. It probably isn't fair. And he gets that. And his heart groans with you and breaks with you. Nevertheless, he is at work. I had no idea that night when I was raging against God all the life that surrounded me in that moment. Because I needed to keep a job, I stuck around. I wanted to quit that night and just drive away. God didn't let me. And I was glad for that. Because as a result, I made some incredible lifelong friendships with the students that I was serving with. I got to be part of their weddings as they were getting married. I got to hold their kids when they started having kids. I got to experience life on a, ne- on a level I never anticipated in that moment. Because I had been trying to get everything right, and it ended up, ended up in this wrong place, is what I felt. Meanwhile, God was at work producing fruit. Remain in me. Understand that obedience is being caught up in this love relationship, and that you are free from this need to perform, this need to prove yourself. If you're like me, that still doesn't sound especially compelling. Like, I hardly know what that kind of joy, that kind of life tastes like. I've only gotten little samples of it. 
And so as we come even this morning, we come as people who are hungry and thirsty but actually need our appetites increased and refined so that we do hunger for him. So that we value that remaining over the performing. God wants to free us from this performance trap by redefining the purpose of our lives. The purpose of our life is not to get it right, to make a name for ourselves, to achieve something. The purpose of our life is intimacy with this loving God. There are rule breakers. There are rule keepers. That's most of us in this room. We all need Jesus. Do you want this kind of life? Jesus says to you and to me, I am that life. Come and receive it. Let's pray together. Jesus, I do pray that you would increase our appetite for you, for the real thing. God, we're so easily satisfied with the junk food. Give us the real thing. Grow in us hearts that would not be satisfied with those cheaper imitations of your goodness. And God, would you uh, somehow shift our minds around this idea of obedience, that obedience is not rule-keeping so much as obedience is relating. And that anything we do to please you, it comes out of this overflow of just being so caught up in you. We can't help but do it. We can't help but produce fruit. God, we're just branches. You're the one that has taken the initiative to tie us to the vine. You're the one that holds us and sustains us. God, you're the one who promises even now to take the stuff that doesn't make sense or might hurt in our lives and make beautiful fruit out of it. So we just say yes to that as best we can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.